Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. We at Israel Policy Forum are excited to launch a new series in partnership with Terrestrial Jerusalem, an Israeli organization committed to identifying and tracking developments in Jerusalem that could impact a two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Each month, we'll discuss different issues shaping the policy conversation on Jerusalem. Our first installment comes at a time when Jerusalem is very much in the news, with last Thursday night's riot by far-right agitators coming on the heels of escalating Arab-Jewish violence in Jerusalem and beyond. So today, we'll be discussing last week's events. But before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to introduce Daniel Seidemann, who is a lawyer based in Jerusalem and the founder of the Terrestrial Jerusalem Organization. Daniel, thank you for joining the program, and thank you for your partnership. It's a pleasure to be with you and with IPF. So how did you get involved working on Jerusalem issues? By mistake. (laughs) Um, On the night of October 9th and October 10th, 1991, uh, uh, the settlers moved into Silvan in semi-military fashion, throwing personal effects out the window and taking over Palestinian homes. You know, I, I followed the news, but I had no immediate involvement in that. The following day, I got a phone call from a friend who was a member of Knesset, or later a minister in the cabinet, uh, Chaim Oron, and said, you got to take this to the Supreme Court. And I said, on what basis? And he said, well, that's what we're going to find out. Well, I had just become a partner in a new and up-and-coming law firm, and I went to my law partners and I said, I want to do some pro bono work on Silwan, and they gave me a very strange look um, and said, no, no, you know, you know oh, you, we, we can't afford that. And that night, one by one, they called me and said, we won't be able to sleep unless we let you do this. And... That dragged me into one of the most riveting uh, cases I've ever handled. It was months of Watergate-like work in which we revealed the genetic code of an Israeli policy to take homes away from Palestinians and to give them to settlers as ideological trinkets. And and it went from there. I mean, you know, people would come to me, they're expropriating the land in Har Choma, or they're demolishing my home, or our residency is endangered. You know, you know, we were lower middle class in my youth, and we would buy an encyclopedia on the installment plan. It was, you know, you get A to C and then D to F. Well, I went from subject to subject on East Jerusalem. October 9th, October 10th, 1991 dragged me into a black hole, and I have not come out the other side. Almost 30 years now. What kind of work does your organization, Terrestrial Jerusalem, perform today? Well, it, it, it transformed over time. In the 1990s and the early 2000s, uh, it was legal work. I had more than 25 appearances on Jerusalem-related matters to the Supreme Court challenging Israeli policies. Um, but as time went on, um, that changed. And there was less legal work and more, I would say, geopolitical work. Um, you know, taking a step back when I have to 
describe what 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 is it we do it's operational intelligence uh we try and um flag developments in jerusalem get the facts right because everybody lies about jerusalem jews christians muslims all lie we want to get the facts right we want to analyze the trends uh, all in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, to try and dismantle um, proverbial ticking time bombs before they go off. And we do that on occasion. We're not a human rights organization, but in extreme situations, yes, we do try to prevent a humanitarian meltdown um, that's based on Israeli policies. And finally, we, we advise um uh the stakeholders um what does it take to uh keep jerusalem viable absent a permanent status agreement what can be done to move towards a permanent status agreement and we have access to pretty much the highest echelons in uh the capitals in united states uh, europe uh and part of the middle east when we're speaking about Jerusalem, we're talking about something that is clearly a very complicated issue and something that cuts to the heart of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So to make it a little easier to understand, can you briefly outline the core overarching issues when it comes to Jerusalem's role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? There's a saying of uh, in regard to the Talmud, Turn it over and over and over again. It's all there. And, and you can say the same of Jerusalem. Um, it is the epicenter of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. It's, it's the volcanic core. And when I take folks out and around on a five or six mile drive clockwise around the old city, all of the components of the conflict are either um, in, in in the front windshield or on the right window or the left window. It's 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 all there. Now, uh, a part of the conflict in Jerusalem is mundane. It's the same as the territorial conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. It's how to equitably divide the city. Uh, so that it will not be half occupied and half free, um, as it is today. Um, but there's something else, you know, 90, 95% of our conflict with the Palestinians is territorial. And if you take out the geographical scalpel and divide the land equitably, you've addressed, you know, many of the issues. But there are two radioactive issues in this conflict, and Jerusalem uh, is one of them, the other being refugees and the right of return. Uh, and there are places in Jerusalem where you have nuclear fusion and you have issues of refugees uh, and the right of return and Jerusalem. Um, but Jerusalem is not merely real estate. Uh, it is part of our national identity. It is the vessel of Jewish holy sites, and whether you're religious or not, this is not mere real estate. 
But the same can be said for the Palestinians. There is no um, Palestinian national movement with Al-Quds, Jerusalem, figuring prominently um, uh, in that national culture. Uh, in the one square kilometer of the old city, you have the tectonic plates of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you know, crunching up against each other in one square kilometer. I mean, you guys in the States have malls with more floor space than the entire old city. So you have a city in which there are two national collectives, Israeli and Palestinian, um, uh, the three great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all cohabiting the same limited and geographical space. Uh, now, that sounds very daunting. It is daunting. But Jerusalem's always, as well, a very wise city. And Jerusalem, when handled properly, um, uh, allows uh, each of the communities that I described to express itself um, uh, without uh, being jeopardized. You know, um, when Jews, Christians, and Muslims, Palestinians, and, and Israelis need not struggle to maintain their identities or the integrity of the sites that are dear and holy to them. But it is also the epicenter of a local, regional, and global conflict. We're both. Um, uh, now, it's possible to die all sorts of deaths in Jerusalem. Boredom is not one of them. So when it comes down to it, this is something where really you have a territorial conflict, a nationalistic or identity conflict, and also a religious conflict all at play at the same time. That's right. A hundred percent. And you probably left something out, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> I'm sure we will. And, you know, when you have each of these factors at play, any kind of event that takes place in Jerusalem is bound to have broader ramifications. And so um, I think it's important that we address what was happening in Jerusalem last week. Uh, there was this riot that took place. It didn't happen in a vacuum. So my question for you is, why did this kind of violence happen when it happened? And why in Jerusalem? First of all, I think that there, there were two sets of violence that need to be addressed. They're very much interrelated, um, but they're a bit different. And there was the um, protest, the violent protest coming from young Palestinians a week ago, mostly focused on Damascus Gate at the entrance to the old city. And there was the violence um, of Lahava, the clinically racist Israeli organization who, for their own reasons, uh, you know, engaged in their own kind of violence. And I want to deal with each of these uh, separately. Um, let's begin with the Palestinian protests and begin at the end. Um, uh, a week ago today, it's Thursday, there were two protests uh, within 300 yards of each other. Um, similar number of people. 
uh, there were the Palestinian, young Palestinian men, some women, and there were the Lahava protesters, equal in number, more or less, and very different in motivation. The only motivation for Lahava is racist. They had no reason to be there except for hatred of Arabs. The um, motivation of the Palestinians was complex. And by the way, there's some racism tossed in there. We'll come to that. Um, and at the end of the night, you know, they they were very similar in a lot of ways. Um, both sides were throwing rocks at the police, throwing bottles at the police, throwing foul smelling liquids at the police, uh, scuffling with the police. And at the end of the evening, there were tens of Palestinian injured and in the hospital, and there were no casualties among the Lahava people because on the Palestinians, uh, the police opened fire with rubber bullets and stun grenades, which they refrained from doing with Lahava. Um, two days later, the commander uh, or the minister of Israel's uh, police, internal security, Ohana, condemned the violence, but he condemned the violence of Arabs against Jews and not the other way around, even if there was both. Um, I think this cuts to the core of the motivation of the young Palestinian demonstrators. It, it's widely accepted that it was the shutting down of Damascus Gate, preventing them from sitting on the steps after and before the prayers in Ramadan, uh, as they ha had done in past years. And they blew up. And, and they blew up because the sense among this generation of young Palestinian men and women is under Israeli rule, uh, Israeli lives matter, Palestinian lives matter less, and sometimes they don't matter at all. I, by, by the way, believe that their perception is indeed correct. Um, in the Palestinian youth in Jerusalem have so few safe places. Um, the Temple Mount, Haram al-Shif, is one of them, and the status quo is being eroded there in a very dangerous way. And they have just one of these few places that's theirs. Um, Damascus Gate is the equivalent of West Jerusalem Zion Gate, and it was taken away from them for no reason. And the police lied about it, saying it's been that way for years. And then our great reporters like Nir Hassan went back into the archives and showed that for every year during the past decade, it's been opened. And there, there, there was a sense that uh, Palestinian and Muslim Jerusalem um, is slipping away from them, that the Palestinian population is being denationalized. It's being fragmented geographically and socially and it's being marginalized. And, and that's why I think this round of violence is over as far as they're concerned. Because the minute the police took down the barricades, which they did, it was over. And the place where they were plashing with the police, they were dancing. Because, you know, it's Ramadan. This is their, this is precious to them. They weren't looking for a fight. Um, but it ended because of the opposite reason why it started. It started because Palestinian lives matter and it ended because they demonstrated. We took on Israel, they're much stronger than us. We articulated this, we protested this, and we won, we matter. And that's why I think it's over.
Now, there's another part of this, and part of this has to do with TikTok. There were a couple or three TikToks um, that were posted showing how young Palestinians were, without provocation, assaulting ultra-Orthodox. I mean, tossing coffee in somebody's face or um, slapping somebody on the light rail and things of, of that nature. Now, I wasn't surprised by this. I've been walking to Sheikh Jarrah in the last 20 years. And every two or three months, I will see a young ultra-Orthodox guy walk by a Palestinian kid. And when the Palestinian kid walks by, he'll turn around and kick the ultra-Orthodox guy in the ass or toss off his hat. Um, you know, there's the occasional targeting of the ultra-Orthodox, something they would never do with the settlers because the settlers would shoot them. But what was unique about this was it was on TikTok and it went viral. And it went viral among Palestinians for about 24 hours until our uh, Shin Bet and police shut it down and arrested everybody involved. But this is what Lahava needed to turn uh, East Jerusalem into a shtetl and uh, the Jews victims of a pogrom. This is what gave them the fuel for their racist uh, uh, flames. Um, so you had these mirror images of two rounds of protests. I think there's room to hope that this round is over. Uh, but none of the underlying issues have been resolved. This is cyclical. It will happen again. It may happen again as soon as Jerusalem Day or Tisha B'Av in another few weeks or a few months. And, you know, lest I sound like an old codger in Los Angeles after a 5.2 Richter scale earthquake, this isn't the big one. This is the periodic violent skirmishing that we will see in Jerusalem. This was not one of the more severe rounds. There were no, no, no fatalities this time. But it will happen every once in a while, every few months, uh, perhaps longer, because it is, you know, in the inherent, in the current rules of the game, where you've got two peoples in Jerusalem, one Israeli, one Palestinian, one with political rights, the other without. But there is a major um, uh, conflagration in the works, and that has to do with... Uh, the Temple Mount and um, the uh, erosion or collapse of the status quo on the Temple Mount. And uh, if you want to cause a regional or global conflagration, tinkering with the status quo on this Temple Mount is where I'd begin. I want to follow up on that point about the Temple Mount, the rioting that happened last week and the uh, escalating violence that was uh, taking place between Arabs and Jews in Jerusalem and in uh, other locations also throughout Israel, 
comes on the heels of a period of tension surrounding the Temple Mount. There had been an accusation by Jordan, which manages the Islamic sites uh, on the Temple Mount, that Israel was violating the status quo there earlier this month, um, and an accusation that the Israeli police had disrupted the call to prayer while a Yom Hazikaron service was being held on the western wall side of the Temple Mount. So, were these events connected in any way? And is there, if not, I guess, um, is there any potential for them to become intertwined with the violence that we saw last week? Um, number one, they are definitely intertwined and intertwined already because this is one ecosystem. Um, Damascus Gate and the Ramadan and Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount, are all intimately connected. And in this case, the immediate trigger was not the mount, but there are underground streams that feed all of these issues. Now, I wanted to relate to something that you said. The Jordanians aren't accusing us of violating the status quo. Israel is violating the status quo. That's not a matter of perception. That's a matter of fact. Um, go to YouTube and look at the Temple Mount movement and you will see them shouting from the rooftops of how they davened in a minion and said Hallel and they did it openly and this is a revolution and it wouldn't happen a year ago. Now, there are various uh, interpretations of what the status quo is, but the core of it is best summarized by our Prime Minister Netanyahu. Muslims pray on the Temple Mount. Non-Muslims visit the Temple Mount. No prayer by non-Muslims on the Temple Mount. That's gone. And that is deeply destabilizing. Now, the um, cutting off of the um, wires to the loudspeakers for the muezzin on the eve of a memorial uh, uh, day uh, ceremony is also telling. Um, there's a ceremony on uh, uh, Memorial Day, the eve, uh, at, at the Kotel, at the Western Wall Plaza. And for many in Israel, including myself, this is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. And it is customary for the president of Israel um, uh, uh, to give a very solemn speech there. Now, um, if there's anybody in Israel who is attuned to the sensitivity of the sanctity of uh, Al-Aqsa and Haram al-Sharif to Muslims, it's, it's President Rivlin. I mean, his father translated uh, the Quran into Hebrew. And for years, there had been an arrangement between the Waqf and the president's office, because there are relations, the Islamic endowment running, you know, things on the mount, that the volume in the two loudspeakers uh, close to the Western Wall Plaza would be drastically reduced. And that is an arrangement that lasted for years. But this time the police decided, no, that's not enough. We, they went to the distant uh, um, loudspeakers, 
and said, shut them off. And the WAC people said, what are you talking about? So the police went in and cut the wires. And it's the kind of thing. Now, is there a list of things in, the, in, in a written codification of the status quo uh, that says, do not cut the wires to the loudspeaker of the museum? Of course not. But the status quo requires cooperation and good faith on all sides. And regrettably, uh, a good deal of that good faith has been lost. Netanyahu, um, in the past, I mean, his spokesperson went around saying, even Danny Seidman says um, Netanyahu is doing a great job on the Temple Mount. And, and for years he was. That's no longer the case. He is dismissive of Jordanian, Muslim, and Palestinian concerns. He's contemptuous of uh, uh, King Abdullah. Now, were this to have happened five years ago, Secretary Kerry would have been on the phone for hours. And he did it a number of times, and he diffused things. This time, nobody picked up the phone. I'm not sure there is a phone. And the trajectory remains in place uh, that we are on our way to a collapse of the status quo on the Temple Mount in a manner that will jeopardize the national security of Israelis, Palestinians, and beyond. There will be blood. Along the lines of that very sobering uh, prognosis of the situation, it's hard not to hear echoes of 2014 when events in Jerusalem and its environs caused a wider conflict. Of course, the murder of three uh, Israeli teenagers in the West Bank and then the murder of a Palestinian teenager in Jerusalem. And now you have right after these riots or really alongside the riots, Hamas firing rockets into southern Israel. What can be done to dial back tensions in Jerusalem in order to ensure that we don't see a repeat of a slide into a broader conflict as occurred uh, seven years ago? Jerusalem, more often than not, uh, is the detonator rather than the explosive device. And uh, you're entirely correct. There is... There are elements um, uh, today that are reminiscent of July of 2014. There, 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 but there's, there's a distinction. In, in 2014, there were the murders of the three uh, settler youth. There was the murder of Muhammad Abu Khtar. Um, there was... You know, a, a conflagration with Gaza, which erupted without really, you know, relationship with Israel. Um, but all last week, people were saying, um, are we going back there? Um, and the fear was a lone wolf terrorist, whether a Jew or a Palestinian, um, for the time being, it seems we have dodged this bullet. What this is really reminiscent of are the events of the metal detector in 2017, 
um, where Netanyahu, uh, rather unplanned, uh, announced the installation of metal detectors on the uh, Temple Mount, and there were mass protests, and they weren't organized by politicians, and they weren't organized by the religious leaders, and they weren't organized by the devout. It was young Palestinians, men and women, who came out in the thousands and tens of thousands, uh, leaderless, but generated their leadership, articulate, nonviolent, uh, although there were a couple of fatalities in this case, and they also won. And I can't tell you, to describe to you the sense of exhilaration there was in 2017. We count for something. Our lives matter. We can control our lives to a certain extent. There was an enormous amount of pride in the week since it was decided to remove uh, the barriers from Damascus Gate. I've sensed the same sense of achievement among the young Palestinians in East Jerusalem. And I believe that that's a good sign that this round may be over. We should hope it is. Daniel, thank you for taking the time to join the podcast today and share your expertise and analysis. And as I said at the beginning, we will be back each month, once a month, with a new Israel Policy Pod, Terrestrial Jerusalem episode, focusing on the issues that are impacting Jerusalem. My thanks to you, Evan, and to Israel Policy Forward. This is a great friendship and partnership. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Israel Policy Pod. Until our next episode, stay safe and stay healthy, and we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.